Today, I'm with Dr. David Caruso, PhD, who is an expert in emotional intelligence. He's a management psychologist who develops and conducts emotional intelligence training around the world. He co-authored the Meyer-Salovey-Caruso Emotional Intelligence Test. He wrote, co-wrote several books, including The Emotionally Intelligent Manager with Dr. Peter Salovey and A Leader's Guide to Solving Challenges with Emotional Intelligence with Lisa Reese. Additionally, he has published dozens of scientific articles on intelligence. Not only that, he's managed people and teams of professionals as well as 14 Little League teams. He has been married to a child clinical psychologist for 40 years, and they have three adult children and four grandchildren. Welcome to Dr. David Caruso. We agreed beforehand that we would go on a first name basis to try to be more informal. Welcome to David. Thank you, Dr. Ko or Christine. I, I agree. You know, we're talking about academic medicine and how hierarchical it is. And one of the key things about emotional intelligence is it's 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 the basis for really good relationships. And so I think and, and I think using our first names here is more than appropriate. So thanks for doing that. Yeah, thank you. I did not grow up knowing about emotional intelligence. And I think that a lot of doctors are aware of the words emotional intelligence and that general sense of it. But could you summarize in a couple sentences what emotional intelligence means to you? Yeah, you know, emotional intelligence is still a bit of a Rorschach for people, right? They, they read into it what they wish, even though it's been around for 30 years. But for us, my colleagues, myself, it, it's an ability. It's an intelligence. It's a hard skill. We don't do soft skill work. One of the things we like to say is that emotions are a form of data or information. So why wouldn't you want more data about what's going on, either with you or your colleagues or your patients, rather than less information and less data? It consists of a bunch of different skills, you know, reading people, their emotions accurately, leveraging those, understanding why people feel the way they feel and accurately perceiving them and then managing them effectively to stay open to the data of emotions. So it is a skill. It's a set of hard skills. Yeah. And when you say hard skill versus soft skill, what does that mean exactly? Yeah. So again, you know, a lot of people, when they talk about emotional intelligence, sometimes they use uh, EQ and things like that. And as a way to say, it's kind of the opposite of intelligence, analytical ability, or what's known as IQ. So when we say it's a hard skill, we say it is related to general intelligence. You don't trade IQ points for more EI points. In other words, it's not a trade-off. You can be intelligent in the traditional sense with super high M MCAT scores, you know, going to medical school and still having a really high level of emotional intelligence. It's not a trade-off. And that's what we mean by a hard skill. It's an intelligence. Okay. Doctors are really used to MCAT scores and tests, that sort of objective measure of how you're learning. Certainly, I never grew up thinking about emotions being similarly able to be kind of rated and scored for someone. I always think it helps me to remember a concept if I know a little bit more about the person or people who first talked about it. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, just to reinforce what you said, I mean, I didn't learn about it emotions growing up. You know, that's the last thing that was uh, that I was taught. So, and that's true for many of us. When I went to school, that's not what you learn as well. That is changing today with students, you know, in, in, in schools with socio-emotional learning. So yeah, I think many of us have in common this, this lack of emotional intelligence or emotion-based upbringing. Yeah. And the way I, I just got to it is I, 
I was a terrible college student and dropped out because I was kind of flunking my way through college. I dropped out, washed dishes for a bit, and then got a job. I got a job in in the state of Maine, uh, where I was uh, where I was going to college uh, as an orderly in a nursing home. But it wasn't just a regular nursing home. This is when deinstitutionalization was occurring. I cared for children aged six months to adults aged seventy two years of age who had lived who had been warehoused in this giant institution uh, in Maine. They were profoundly seriously multiply handicapped, not just wheelchair bound, but lying on a mat for all of their lives. Another law was passed called the Education of All Handicapped Children's Act when I was an orderly. And one day they wheeled up a mobile home next to the nursing home and uh, they hired a teacher to teach the residents. And I was hired as a teaching assistant and did that for a bit and realized that's what I wanted to do. I, I, you know, I sort of found myself, I guess, went back to school, did really well, went to graduate school, did really well, came to Yale as a postdoctoral fellow in psychology. It was really that experience, I guess, being a terrible college student enabled me to, to find my way here. I don't think I would have ever figured that out on my own but it was some happenstance. You know, I think a lot of people say this when you hear some of the most significant events in their life, that it's often something that you maybe couldn't figure out at first, mm-hmm. like say college for you, that then eventually really helps you end up doing what you were meant to do. Had you been studying emotional intelligence before you came to Yale? Oh, yeah. So when I went to grad, so because of my background as working in a nursing home and a teaching assistant, I was really interested in individual differences and in, also in human intelligence. So in grad school at Case Western, I studied intelligence, like what it is, how it develops, how do you measure it? And then that's sort of, uh, you know, I did that for a, a bit. And then when I came to Yale as a postdoc, it was more the broadening of the concepts of intelligence. I, I work with one of the founders of Project Head Start for the listeners who know what that is another researcher who studied theories of intelligence. And I also kept in touch with a colleague from, uh, from grad school, Jack Mayer. I met Peter Salovey, uh, who was a young grad student when I was a postdoc. They met separately. And so, you know, again, it was serendipitous to some extent that these, you know, these relationships were formed and we stayed in touch. Uh, and they went on to develop the theory of emotional intelligence uh, together. And then brought me brought me in to actually apply all this. When you were working at the nursing home, did you see emotional intelligence in action? Uh, you know, unfortunately, I saw it, the lack of it in action. Where if you had a lot of empathy, you didn't last. And I think to some extent, I didn't last that long. It was it was heartbreaking to watch children who had been dumped off by families into these institutions, no visitors, and I was basically their sole human contact. It, it, was, it was heartbreaking each and every day. And to feel others' pain requires amazing amounts of emotion management skill, which I definitely lacked then as a college student or college dropout, actually. So I saw the lack of it in others. And I think I saw not the lack of it in me, but the fact that caring comes with a cost. And those of you who are in healthcare, you'll talk about compassion fatigue. It's very real. And I know what that is. But, you know, Christine, I, I, you know, this sounds like, therefore, you shouldn't give a damn. And that's not the message. So the message is, if you do care deeply and have emotional empathy, don't give that up. Instead, work on your emotion management skill so that you are able to sleep at night, that you don't burn out 
and die young and, and lose, you know, all hope and quit those jobs, which are of immense value to society. What do you think is a key way that someone in healthcare, someone in that kind of nursing home situation that you were in can be successful at starting with emotion management? Oh, there are the big things and, and you know, these long-term strategies that everybody knows. Uh, people will, will roll their eyes when we, when we talk about it diet and exercise and sleep and prayer and meditation and social relationships. But, you know, I've worked with physicians doing lots of clinical work and they'll say, look, I'm getting up at five in the morning now to do rounds. And what you want me to get up at three or four to, to, to run. So I want to be careful about what I say. I don't do what you do and I don't know what would work, but it's important to mention those things. But relationships are key. Stopping and talking to people if you can talking to your colleagues, doing this, doing this broadcast, this podcast, you know, talking to people, having people hear your voice, sharing those things is really helpful. But the other things are also helpful, short-term strategies. I always think, you know, small things like day of the week, time of day when you have a meeting. Do you have any ability to schedule meetings when you're at your best? Take a pause. We call it an intervening moment. So before responding, you get, you know, whether an angry patient interaction or colleague or email, don't hit send. Stop. Think. Count to, people would say count to 10. I say count to three. Count to one. Think (laughs) about the response, you know. Think about who it is that you are. Who it is the person, you know, who who is the person you want to be? Then reread that email. And is that the person you want to be? There's all sorts of really short-term things that you can do like that. Yes, thank you. That's very helpful. In your book, A Leader's Guide to Solving Challenges with Emotional Intelligence, which you co-wrote with Lisa Reese, you write, and I really like this line, emotions are what build relationships and trust. They connect people. Along those lines, you suggest using compensatory strategies to build emotional intelligence, like staying calm, using small talk, explaining, being honest, being curious, and understanding others. You kind of touched on this just now with that pause, you know, taking a moment, being aware that there's another person, there's you, that there might be emotion. Is there one of these compensatory strategies that you think kind of works the best? Or, I mean, I'm sure it's individual, different for different individuals, but is there one that you think that people find easier? It should be unique to each individual, unfortunately, right? Because let's say you're really good at reading people's emotions. You don't need compensatory strategies. You're good at it. But let's say you're not. Let's say you misread people. Uh, You thought that person was angry with you. They really weren't. They were just, they were yawning or they they got something in their eye and that wasn't what was going on. So a compensatory strategy for that individual is really different. And here's an example. Let's say you recognize, all right, you know what? I've had a few situations where I acted on my gut feel, but my gut feel is inaccurate. It's just, I, I misread people. So rather than saying things like, well, Christine, um, how do you feel about this podcast so far? Actually, Christine, how do you feel about this podcast so far? Good. <laughs> all right. So if I'm someone who misreads people, I all, you just also gave me a non-answer. Like, what does good mean? I, a compensatory strategy is, Christine, on a scale of zero to 10, zero is like, oh my God, this is going really badly. To 10, this could never, ever be better. How is it going so far? Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I would say 
7.5. Okay, you're being kind. So this compensatory strategy is not over. Yeah. No, that's cool. Yeah. But here's the key question. The rest of it doesn't matter. Here's the real question. This is the compensatory strategy. Christine, what do I need to do to go from a 7.5 to a 10? I'm not familiar with doing podcasting. And so it feels very new to me. So while I'm having a lot of fun right now, it's a little bit nerve wracking. That lack of 2.5 is because I have a little bit of nervousness about getting this done. That's an example of a compensatory strategy, you know, in the moment. Now for you, it would be, all right, so at this point, what's a a, a strategy to manage your emotions? Take that deep breath, you know, take that pause. I mean, you know, do it. Now actually do it. It doesn't take that long. Also, you know, you're by you're taking that pause, hit a bit reset. What else could you do? What else could I do? And so forth. And then there's another real quick technique here, which is, you know, for something like this, we want to be psyched up, right? We want to be energized, I think. And so let's say, you know, later in the day uh, is not your, your, the, the best time of day. But, you know, how many times a day do you psych yourself up, which is generate the mood that you need to be in now? Right now, I'm clenching my fists and I'm moving them up and down and I'm, I'm sitting up straighter in my chair and I'm actually, you know, getting more energized now in order to be more present for you. So again, these are examples of compensatory strategies. Uh, the first set of questions for, uh, about reading people and emotions. And then we, we actually demonstrated, hopefully, these other emotion management strategies to either be more focused, to calm down, to go from 7.5 to 10 or whatever that would be. Yeah. Thank you very much. This has been really educational for me, actually, to run through that exercise of a scale of one to 10. I read your book actually multiple times and I haven't gotten as much, I I didn't get that experiential feel for it that I just did. So that's awesome. Do you have any final thoughts? Yeah. The skills of emotional intelligence are really, really helpful, but you don't have to master them. It, it, it helps just to get a little bit better. People who are listening to this have amazingly successful careers. They're super smart. They have a lot of technical skill. They did everything the right way. These skills of emotional intelligence, if you work at it just a little bit more, they're enormously helpful for your professional relationships. And as you started out to say earlier, for your personal relationships as well. It will only enhance you know, your own, your relationships, professional and personal, and your own well-being, and avoid that compassion fatigue, which is all too real in this field. Thank you very much, David. We are going to have a part two with David because this is such a large topic. If you enjoyed what you heard, just tune in for part two when you see it. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you, Christine.